0: Welcome in, you knotheads. You've arrived in the nick of time. I'm your host, Nick Cormier, here with you to discuss, once again, the goings-on in pop culture, current events, television, film, entertainment, etc., what have you and whatnot. On today's episode of The Pod, we're going to go ahead and chat about Where We'll Find Night, the new Marvel one-shot. We'll chat about the most recent episodes of House of the Dragon, as well as Rick and Morty, a pair of my favorite shows that come out on Sundays. Uh, Then we'll touch base on the She-Hulk finale. A little bit controversial, but for the most part, I think mostly enjoyable. At least, I think that anybody that doesn't enjoy it that much has some problems. Maybe you're a part of Intelligentsia. I don't know. Seriously, check yourself before you wreck wreck, 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 wreck yourself. And then finally, we'll go on and chat uh, before we're done with the episode about Broken Bells. Their new album, Into the Blue, Its Meaning, uh, and the Place of DJ Danger Mouse amongst the musical elite. So, thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned to the Not Pod, you noteds. All right, getting right into it, we'll talk about Werewolf by Night, the new Marvel streamer. I believe they're calling it a one-shot. I don't believe that these characters will ultimately remain one-shot. I think at the moment they're just not committed to anything more than this one episode. as kind of a seasonal special. Since it is kind of like a Halloween monsters vibe sort of thing, it goes with the theme of Halloween, which is the month of October uh, most closely associated. We'll definitely have some Halloween goodness coming to the pod real soon, so stay tuned for that, not this episode. But uh, back to the matter at hand is that we have Werewolf by Night, who's an interesting character on the outer rim of the Marvel characters. There's so many, obviously, to choose from in the Marvel Universe. Um, And it's interesting that Werewolf by Night was chosen. But there's definitely some interesting characters in this show. Uh, So... Playing Playing Werewolf by Night, whose real name is Jack Russell, like Jack Russell Terrier. Thought that was pretty interesting and cute. Uh, is Gael Garcia Bernal? Um, you may know him from stuff like uh, Old Mozart in the Jungle, Bad Education, uh, The Motorcycle Diaries. Um, there's some other stuff too. He does some voice acting work in Coco. But he's a really good actor, a Mexican actor. Um, he plays Jack Russell, the werewolf by night. And Laura Donnelly plays Elsa Bloodstone, who is for some reason this like forsaken member of the Bloodstone family. The Bloodstone family being a, apparently a famous monster hunting family uh, that does have this gem that the episode revolves around. All of these various monster hunters gathering now that Ulysses, Ulysses Bloodstone, the patriarch of the Bloodstone family, has passed away, uh, and and Elsa, along with these monster hunters, have gathered so that they can attain or obtain rather the Bloodstone, which is a mystical stone that somehow uh, imbues power, strength, life, longevity, uh, and helps against monsters. Uh, for monster hunting purposes. It seems like it's a really valuable artifact. Um, So anyway, you have Gail Garcia Bernal playing Jack Russell. You have Laura Donnelly playing Elsa Bloodstone. Um, She looks a lot like Jessica Jones, so there's definitely a parallel, a sweet parallel going on there. Uh, She's this badass monster hunter. uh, You may know her from The Nevers. She was the lead role in The Nevers, the HBO underrated HBO show. Uh, Josh Whedon streamer for HBO Max a couple years back during the pandemic, um, and then and then other characters show up, but the actors and actresses are a lot less important because I'm not sure that they go to the long the long point of the MCU because a lot of them just get slaughtered within within this little 45 minute jaunt. Uh, but yeah, you have uh Jack Russell Werewolf by Night and he's there not to obtain the bloodstone as it so happens but actually there to free his his friend Ted who I believe is being referred to on the Reddit forums as Man Thing or Thing Man um I guess that's another character in the MCU universe he kind of looks like this walking Cthulhu uh you know kind of weird uh yeah horror like, well, I mean, it is all horror, right? But you know what I mean? It's like Cthulhu. There's like a special type of horror that uh, is eluding me at the moment. I can't really think about what type of horror it is that Cthulhu is. But it's this like strange tentacle-faced octopus giant creature thing. And that's what Man-Thing is. And his name is Ted. And that's what Jack Russell's doing at the Bloodstone Estate on the eve of this hunt. Uh, they're hunting Ted. And it turns out Jack Russell, uh, Werewolf by Night's secret ulterior motive during this episode is to free his friend Ted from this monster hunt and not actually obtain the bloodstone, uh, like of course the the daughter of the late Ulysses uh the daughter Elsa's trying to do, or any of these other characters. It's kinda like Large, uh, Kurt Russell type, bigger like thick Kurt, Mus- Kurt muscle. We'll call him Kurt Muscle. Uh, got this sweet-looking white-haired dude who does cool stuff. Uh, this Asian guy, this black dude. Uh, there's a bunch of bunch of different uh, unique characters that unfortunately all end up dead. We don't get to learn enough about them, um, which definitely sucks. Would have liked some of the background on some of these Monster Hunters, but what are you gonna do? Not everything can be fully fleshed out. They don't have time for all of it. I get it, honestly. One thing I want to get through, despite criticisms, is like I nitpick. I nitpick at everything. Call it nitpicks, nitpicking. Um, but that doesn't mean that I dislike things necessarily. So even where I where I poke a hole in this show, or this hour of television, or I mock it for being Disneyflation. Uh, with the 45-minute episode that could have obviously been an hour, an hour, and 15 minutes if they really wanted it to be. Um, that doesn't mean I disliked it. Because, like, what I want to say is that Werewolf by Night was incredibly entertaining. Very refreshing for a Disney, uh, Disney thing. And I hope we get more dark stuff like it. Like, I hope that our Blade adaptation, the Blade movie, is kind of, like, dark and of all this, like, eldrick, eldrick, warrior, that, eldrick horror, that is what the fucking man thing is, he reminds you of, like, eldrick horror, got it, jeez, I'm glad that came to me out of nowhere, but, um, anyhow, I hope we get Blade in a similar fashion and style as we got this, because that would make for a pretty sick-ass Blade, if you're asking me, which you're not, but hopefully you're hearing what I'm saying and putting down. So, other things that were awesome about this uh, episode, or rather, like, let's go with the plot still, right? So, Jack meets Elsa in the labyrinth that all the hunters are sent to to hunt Ted. Ted, who has the bloodstone on him, which weakens him. Um, Jack and Elsa get locked in her familial crypt together. Uh, and while they're locked in the familial crypt, she he confesses that he doesn't want the bloodstone. He just wants Ted. Um, and Elsa says, okay, I can make that happen as long as I become the owner and, and sole uh, custodian of the Bloodstone. And of course, Jack Russell says that's fine, because we all know that, well, we will know shortly well, we know because of this scene that he's actually just there for his buddy Ted. So Elsa runs into Ted, says, your friend's looking for you, Ted. You got to go find him. He, Jack Russell's exploding a wall. Ted goes free, but not before Elsa uses a weapon that she removed from a tomb in the familial uh, burial ground, uh, this like chain whip thing to break the bloodstone off of Ted's back and, and uh, unleash it. Now, Jack Russell does go to pick it up. Which I wonder about, uh, low-key, if he didn't really want it why well, was was even going to grab it, couldn't he just let Elsa have it, was he like doing a mansplaining thing where he's like, oh, hello, dear, let me let you get that, let me get that for you, love, alright, that was awful British, and not to mention he's got a Mexican accent because he's Spanish, uh, or a Spanish accent because he's Mexican, one way or the other, Uh, The joke on me because uh, he doesn't sound like that and his character doesn't have that sort of accent. So it's more like, uh, okay, no, we're just going to get really bad accents. So let's stop doing that. And let's say, you know, Jack Russell goes for this medallion on the ground, the Bloodstone, and I'm not entirely sure why. Maybe he really did want to see if, like, what the power was like of holding it. Either way, he picks it up, and in attempting to do so, reveals himself as a monster, werewolf by night, because, of course, monsters can't touch the bloodstone. So, uh, or, wait, then why was it on Ted's back? All right, I definitely just came up with what feels like a plot hole, but that's fine. I can overlook this plot hole. It's fine. It's fine. Uh so anyway, Ted escapes they bring the werewolf by night and Elsa down into the, the mansion uh, and in the basement of the mansion the evil stepmother, classic Disney says that uh, you know he's going to transform into werewolf by night because the bloodstone's going to do it and then he's going to eat and, and kill Elsa and it won't be on her hands and her father would have wanted it this way uh, so take that so, obviously, that goes awry when Werewolf by Night escapes his cage, uh, not before sniffing Elsa and what is uh, sensual, uh, like, lightly. It's definitely a little bit sensual, but at the same time kind of, like, uh, wholehearted and definitely, like, cool. It's, like, a cool, uh, wholehearted uh, scene where he's, like, sniffing her. But it's also sensual. That's a very interesting combination. It's a scene where he's like sniffing her so he can remember her when he turns into werewolf by night by her scent. But it's also like um, a wholesome scene because he's just trying to be good, uh, like not a murderer. He's like, I don't want to turn into a werewolf and do bad things. Uh, which makes you really like this character. I really do like this character a lot. I also like the Elsa uh, Bloodstone character a lot. They both survive the brawl once they get out of the cage. The stepmother's killed. All the other hunters are killed. All of the... Are there, like... Are there TVA agents? What's going on? Who are those, like, domed agents? I have so many questions. Oh, man. Maybe there's, there's, like, some low-key juice in this one-hour one-shot that actually has to do with... uh... The rest of the greater MCU. I don't know. The acting was great. The The quirkiness was great. The little baby fight scenes were good. Um, I do like the darkness. I love the black and white monochrome uh, cinematography angle. Of the first 43 minutes or so of the episode. Um, I really, really like it a lot. And I hope we get more of it. Because it looks so good. Uh, especially with like four K cinema with the cameras we have nowadays. But anyway, Werewolf by Night. I would give it on a scale of ten. I would give it a nine out of ten. We do use eight and halves and nine and halves on this scale. But I'll give it a nine out of ten. It was really highly enjoyable. One of the most quality things that Marvel has put out this entire year. And I really wish I wish we could get more of this. Like, even just another one shot or two, I'd be so stoked on. But I guess at that point, it's a Werewolf by Night movie. And, you know, Disney, we're not giving away the goods for free. Uh, at least not until 46 days after release. All right, let's go ahead and talk about House of the Dragon. Now, I know I haven't been doing this Uh, As a weekly review, I know there's so many uh, constantly so many podcasts out there that are trying to you know capitalize off of the success of the continuation of the world of Westeros uh, and the popularity, of course, of the series itself. I, however, have kind of maintained like that I'll check in, talk about it here and there, but um, really not interested in doing a week to week review. But these next two episodes that we're going to talk about here, episode 8 and episode 9, I'm doing together. Before next week, we'll ultimately talk about the finale of the first season and discuss uh, the first season as a whole and how it compares to the first season of Game of Thrones, what it could potentially mean for the series going forward, uh, and other things of that nature. Now, it does uh, behoove me to mention off the top of this that I have not read the source material, I'm not familiar With the fire and blood work, uh, blood and uh, blood and whatever, uh, I can't remember the name of the book that it's based on. Uh, so I don't have any spoiler information, I'm not reading ahead. And you can, with confidence, listen to whatever I have to say on these podcasts without potentially running into spoilers that are related to source material that may already be available information. So, if you, like myself, are enjoying this as a weekly event, something to look forward to, then fear not. Uh, Fear not, Knothead. You've come to the right place, and you can feel safe that you won't be spoiled here. So, let's first talk about Episode 8. It's called The Lord of the Tides, but I really want to call it The Triumph of Viserys, um, because Patty Considine deserves an Emmy nomination, if not an Emmy win, potentially for this episode alone. Now, granted, I've been a big Patty supporter of Patty Stan, really because of the work he did in stuff like Hot Fuzz for Edgar Wright, and then, of course, uh, I I liked him in The World's End a great deal, which is why I really did enjoy his portrayal of King Viserys in this series top to bottom, but this episode, The Triumph of King Viserys, specifically... Because he does what looks to be the impossible. He takes at his function uh, and all the frayed ends that are created over the course of the first seven episodes within the Targaryen dynasty. And he puts it all back together. Because at the dinner, they do appear to all get along. And the toasts appear genuine. Uh, uh, well, at least for anybody but the young children. Like, of course, um, Amon. Targaryen Aemond is a little asshole, and he can't get over the fact he lost his eye, even though he claims that it was a good trade because he traded it for a dragon. He still acts like a little prick at that dinner. Uh, I won't go too deep into that. Definitely getting some big Aemond and Daemon uh, vibes off of the ending of that dinner. I hope, hopefully, that's foreshadowing uh, to the nature of their confrontation that must, uh, assuming uh, assuming later this is a confrontation that must occur. Uh, between the, the Alicent and the Rhaenyra uh alliances or parties, uh war parties. Um but the reason this episode is so amazing is because Patty Considine playing this decrepit, um, you know, kind of like sickly old version of King Viserys. Uh this guy who's clearly got like some type of leper thing going on. Um, you know, not Not every character is aging the way that King Viserys is, which there have been people have pointed it out as though it's a plot hole or some type of poor writing on the part of the writers room. I simply uh, attribute the fact that he's the way he is due to some form of leprosy, like some type of skin disease that's slowly rotting away at his body and uh, weakening his immune system. Uh, And I think that you'd do best to attribute it that same way. But what makes this episode so amazing, not only is the acting at the dinner where Viserys, you know, lets everybody know that he sacrificed his wife because he thought that that was the duty for his family. You know, he thought he took the throne even though he really didn't want it and he wanted his sister to have it. Because he thought that was his duty to the family. And that constantly he's made these sacrifices throughout his life, really that have been for the betterment of the Targaryen dynasty and not necessarily what he wants to do. If King Viserys had his way, he'd be playing with his little miniature sculptures of the kingdom, of the Red Keep, and he'd be talking about his histories and things of that nature. He really doesn't want to be the king. Um, You know, heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? We do remember back the allusion to his potential inability to be the king when the Iron Throne cuts him as he sits on it whilst talking to Damon. uh, which, if you remember back to Game of Thrones, there was the whole, the Iron Throne never cuts the worthy, um, but if it cuts you, then you may, in fact, be unworthy of sitting the Iron Throne, so, we get the scene with the dinner, uh, where you got Allison raising a toast, and Renera raising a toast to one another, and saying that they can kind of understand one another, they can definitely have empathy from one another now, as they're both mothers, uh, and they are childhood friends, they do have a shared history together. Um, so there's definitely that going on. But then there's the scene where Damon and Rhaenyra both beg that the king make himself present when they're talking about the, the throne... Um, of Driftmark. You know, who's gonna be the one that takes over for Driftmark? If um if it turns out that Corlys Valerian, who was severely wounded to start the episode, is unable to maintain the throne of Driftmark, who will be the appropriate heir? Because as we know, Renera's son are all strong men and they're bastards. Um, but obviously that's not of fact, so much as it is a widely speculated thing. So, the king himself brings himself down to the throne room in his completely weakened and sickly state. He's basically clinging to life on the edge of this cane. This cane is carrying so much weight and pain that it's like, I don't know. So, uh, you know... How do I put this delicately? I don't know that I've ever seen such great acting with somebody just walking on a cane in my entire life. Because Paddy Considine makes you feel like not only is his body failing him, but this man is carrying the entire weight of the Seven Kingdoms physically on his back and forcing his hands down onto this cane, which is going into the stone. But it feels like the entire weight of the Seven Kingdoms is on this cane as it slowly makes its way down the throne room. And, of course, he gets to the throne and Otto towers on the throne, his hand, his reinstated hand of the king. And he says to him, I'll sit the throne today. And it's just so powerful, um, the way that Patty delivers the performance as sickly old King Varys. You know, he said that I thought that this succession was already uh, approved. I don't know why we're arguing uh, again against a settled succession. And he's really throwing his weight as the king around. Granted, it's very clear at this point that Alicent and Otto have been getting away with ruling the kingdom in the stead of Viserys as he's kind of slowly rotted away. Uh, but they're pouring him with so much milk, pour- pouring him so full, rather, with milk of the poppy that he's drugged up to high heaven. He doesn't know what's going on. So it's amazing that he decides to stop taking that so he can get a clear frame of mind. It's amazing that he responds to Damon and Rhaenyra to even appear during that uh, that trial or that, that little uh, you know discussion regarding the ascension for Driftmark um but it's even more amazing that the performance that Patty Constantine gives during that scene is just so freaking powerful. I say freaking. Why am I saying freaking? It's my podcast. It's so fucking powerful, man. And uh yeah, I just really want to sell out 100% for this episode. Now it was it real I guess it was just a really phenomenal it was like Borderline transcendent performance for Paddy Considine, and I really do hope that they at least give him a nomination. I don't know if he gets a win uh, for that performance, but I certainly want a nomination, because in memoriam, memoriam, this is, like I said, the episode title should have been The Triumph of King Viserys, because he gets what he wants, he gets his family to stop the infighting, even for just a dinner, they're all enjoying each other. The one part of this episode that I did not like, I will say, is the ending where Viserys is dying. Um, you know, you you have Alicent in bed with the king, and he, she misinterprets the the dream that he is, he's, remi- he's reminded of Aegon the Conqueror's dream regarding the Song of Fire and Ice. A story that Rhaenyra asks, Earlier in the episode, is that even a true story? So she, so he thinks that he's responding to his daughter Rhaenyra about the story of the Song of Fire and Ice, the dream of Aegon the Conqueror being true. But all Allison hears is Aegon's name and assumes that the king is actually saying it, it needs to be Aegon on the throne and, and not Rhaenyra. Uh, and that misinterpretation is going to be the precedent behind... Or rather, it's going to be the onus behind why it is Alicent is going to go back to fighting Rhaenyra, uh for control of the kingdom, essentially. Because she believes that's what the King Venerys won Viserys, rather, wanted. And on his deathbed, did amend what he was trying to accomplish for the ascension for the, for the Iron Throne. Now, I don't like that because... I mean, it makes me uncomfortable, which maybe I should like it more, and my comfort level shouldn't really factor into this. But it makes me uncomfortable the thought that, uh, you know, Allison mishears his wishes, and that's the onus for the entire series, essentially, from this point forward. But I guess at the same time, that discomfort is also a good thing because that means that the writing is pretty solid. Because if it makes me uncomfortable, that means that they did a good job writing a scenario. Uh, in which it's totally believable, but also at the same time kind of horrifying, uh, to realize that that's what's going on. So, that was the eighth episode, The Triumph of King Viserys. Like the name of the episode is called Lord of the Tides. Great episode. Honestly, best episode of the series so far. So, episode nine, obviously going to have a lot to, um, to follow up on. So it's called the Green Council. Uh, Viserys is dead. Um, Alicent is telling her father, Otto Hightower, that his final wish was to uh, restore Aegon to the throne as his true successor, as opposed to Rhaenyra, which is, of course, what Otto was already interested in doing. When she's in a council meeting, she finds out that that was already happening. Uh, The King's Hand was trying to win over the Great Houses. Uh, the Green Council agrees to Aegon's succession as opposed to Renera. They were already making plans to do just that. Uh, Lord Beesbury is the is the one of the two Just, I'm sorry, I say descendants, but that's not wrong. Uh, one of the two dissenters, and Lord Beesbury and the Lord Commander are both uninterested. Uh, And what they feel is treason. And to them it does look like treason because it does seem as though it's treason. It's written as if Allison is just making up the words uh, and putting them into the mouth of the late King Viserys. So it does make sense, um, obviously, if someone else were there to have heard these things. It would be a lot more palatable, a lot more believable, uh, but that's not how it works. Uh, And, of course, we know that even though he said these words, they were, in fact, misinterpreted by Allison. So, who knows if they may or may not have been misinterpreted by any other third parties that could have vouched uh, for Allison's claim to begin with. However, the Green Council uh, mostly agrees to let the plan go. Lord Beesbury is killed by Sir Kristen Cole, who's become a true fucking heel bastard. Like, talk about this story arc for this guy. He was like a love interest, takes Rhaenyra's virginity. uh, Then he doesn't want to be the whore of the queen and ends up becoming the whore of the queen anyway, but without the sex. Um, Speaking of sex, later in this episode, we get a really weird scene where uh, the new Littlefinger in this series, whose name is evading me right now. Uh, he's one of the remaining, uh, his family got, he killed off his own family so that he could take over the house and be the king of, or the master of whispers. Um, but I can't remember for the life of me, the character's name right now, but, uh, it feels like it's really important to remember this name. Uh, wasn't strong wasn't Baratheon, uh, wasn't Darklyn? wasn't Westerling. What is it? Who is it? Hightown? no, not Valerian. God, I really wish I knew who this guy was. Laris Strong, that's right, it was the Strong family. Laris, Laris is his name. So Laris is masturbating while the Queen just has her feet out. And it's a totally weird Hollywood Quentin Tarantino style, like Nickelodeon weird guy who was in charge of the kids' programming Weird, like, foot fetish thing that's got going on there. He's literally masturbating under his cloak while looking at the queen's feet. And the queen seems aware of it, even though she's kind of looking off into the distance. Like, this is the trade-off. For the information I'm going to bring you, you're going to let me masturbate in your chambers while staring at your unclothed feet. It's super weird. I'm not really entirely sure how it fits. Uh, I'm not sure if it's necessary. It's a little bit... It's a little bit much. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a foot fetish guy myself. I don't mean to shame you if you are. I just don't know where this kind of fits into the Game of Thrones show. Uh, You know, maybe they could have done some weird, like, allusions to them actually having full-on sex or some weird stuff. I don't know. It just feels super weird. He's literally jerking off under his cloak while staring at the Queen's feet. And it made me feel super uncomfortable. Maybe it's meant to do so, but uh, I, it, it was a it was a feel bad. Meanwhile, um, uh, meanwhile, the Kingsguard has been told that uh, Princess Rayness Rainus Valerian, uh, that she's to be kept locked in her room while she decides about Allison's proposal to potentially betray Rhaenyra's claim and her brother's last wishes to join the claim for Aegon. Uh, they won't let her out of her room. She gets escorted out of her room by one of the true King's Kingsguard, uh, who is still loyal to the king and his final wishes. So um, what happens is Sir Eric smuggles her out, and while doing so, um, the dragon, Melis, is freed, which is, of course, the dragon that um, Raynis, uh is is in command of. She's a dragon rider to Melis, Uh And Melis comes up through the dragon pit while they're trying to crown Aegon. Uh, through Comes up through the floor, causing chaos, killing some folks. But there's a moment at the end of the episode where Rainice could have said Dracarys and lit Aegon and Allison and Otto Hightower and killed all these bastards in one fell swoop. Honestly, I was I was hoping she would say it and they would pull some deus ex machina where they somehow all survived. Uh, but I just wanted to see them all burn. Uh, I guess you can't get four more seasons of House of Dragon. If you have the dragon, pop out of the floor of the house and start roasting the queen Regent, the future king, the hand of the king, you start roasting everybody, suddenly there's nobody left, uh, to do this television show, so I get why they didn't do it, but damn was I hoping that she would just say, Dracarys, and that would be Rhaenys, kind of like, doing something, but then it would be a thing, I guess, between her and Rhaenyra over who deserves the throne, honestly, that would have been fine by me too, cause, uh, you know, Allison's an idiot, Aemond is a piece of shit, Aegon is an idiot, uh, Kristen Cole's a bastard, and Otto High Tower deserves to die with crabs eating the flesh off of his body. So, while Episode Nine was pretty good going into the finale, it wasn't quite the penultimate episode that classic Game of Thrones seasons have had. I did enjoy Episode Eight, Lord of the Tides, a great deal better than the Green Council. But next week is the season finale of House of the Dragon. Uh, It's called the Black Queen. We don't have any information. I haven't looked at the preview, so I don't know what's supposed to happen in it, what it looks like, what might happen. I imagine it'll focus a lot on Daemon and Rhaenyra as they learn of her father's death and his brother's death and decide just how to proceed forward after Aegon has been named uh, the Lord of the Realm, Lord Protector of the Realm, Uh, and is now sitting the Iron Throne. Uh, I'm expecting it to be a very good episode. I know after episode 8, I'm very uh, high on what this show can produce. I'm high on this writing staff uh, and what could happen going forward. I know that the executive producers just extended their deal with HBO Max, so it's very clear that they, too, have a lot of faith in what this team is capable of. Uh, Like I said, episode 8 was an all-time great ascension of the show, episode nine pretty good, while not reaching the heights of episode eight. Still pretty good and necessary to get to where we're going here, which is the season finale. Uh, and I look forward to talking about that next week. All right, let's go ahead and get into the last two episodes of Rick and Morty, uh, episodes five and six of season six entitled Final D Smith Station. And Jurassic Mort, respectively. First, we'll talk about Final D Smith Station. So the episode starts off with Jerry and the family at a Panda Express, and Cherry is Jerry is pronouncing chow me chow mein uh, instead of regular chow mein. Uh, very hilarious joke already. Beth reminding him that of course the cook inside of the Panda Express is actually from Oregon. And not from China itself. They all open their fortune cookies to find rather generic, blase fortunes that are disappointing. Until Jerry opens his fortune cookie and it says, you will have sex with your mother. So, that's the onus for the entire episode. It starts off with the family trolling Jerry a little bit about his uh, worry. (laughs) His seemingly innocuous worry about having sex with his mother. Um... As the family gets ready to go to the zoo, which is also a callback to uh, the second episode of Interdimensional Cable, when Jerry, of course, uh, gets out of the hospital, the space hospital bed and says, I want to take my family to the zoo, and they're all like, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't want to go to the goddamn zoo. (laughs) Good callback. I do enjoy the callbacks this season a great deal. Um, But as they go to the zoo, Rick holds Jerry back and scans his probability waves to find that, in fact... Jerry does have some strange form of probability forming around him uh, that does put Rick off of it. So they do a test with a box uh, with Jerry's mother's name written on the roof on of the lid of one of the boxes and two penis-shaped holes uh, in each of the boxes where Rick checks to see which of the boxes he would put his penis in, potentially. Uh, and And Jerry continues to without realizing it, choose the box that would have his mother would be his mother's vagina. So that's hilarious. Next thing you know, Ricks saying, we got to go to, I gotta say something I've never said before. We need to go to Panda Express. So they go to Panda Express and a shootout commences between the Panda Express employees who apparently are dealing meth out of the back of the kitchen uh, and not have don't have anything to do with the actual fortune cookies., uh, the fortune cookies were produced by a company called Fortune 500. Which, of course, is a, a joke and hilarious regarding the stock market. Um, Rick and Jerry go undercover at the company Fortune 500 to find that this woman who's impersonating Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, who rushes her vagina across uh, Chinese some special grass every day to make sure it's beautiful. Uh, her pussy is super clean. she got a powerful and clean pussy. Uh... That 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 was a great joke too, because I know like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow has a company called Goop, and like it's basically the big this big scam, but people get into it and they're like devout followers and whatnot. But anyway, this Gwyneth Paltrow character has found a space alien who's able to like control fate, uh, or somehow has an intestinal disease. Uh, Rick explains it like gravity that this monster can pull things that wouldn't happen, the unreal towards the real, or the unimaginable towards reality. Um, So, because of a digestive issue, look, sometimes Rick and Morty science isn't really going to be as sensical as other times, and this is one of those times where it doesn't make any sense. There's just a, a beast out there, an alien species that controls fate, why Rick has never gone looking for one of these before i won't know but he does want to capture it instead of just destroy it jerry says can we blow up the building and rick says no i've got to have it so through a series of um spying and infiltrating the company and inspector gadget style bits where rick is once again using you know like an electronic eye that acts as a periscope or he has all of these extensions coming out of his bodies with buzz saws and blades and katanas and other stuff on them they enter and they go through the facility. Meanwhile, they face off against security who's eating emergency fortunes uh, who, like, say you will have luck in a fight and suddenly, like, all of Rick's weapons are disarmed and he can't use them properly. So that's a pretty cool element of this episode is that the fortunes are doing all this weird stuff. Like, this one guy only shoots headshots. So when Rick gets behind him and starts aiming at his uh, squad mates, All of the squad mates get killed really fast, and they have generic-sounding names. Dave C., Dave N., Dave M., Jerry, Johnny, oh no! I thought that was another good joke about the generic name of some people in the service, because, you know, some people in the service are a little bit of an egghead. Um, But anyhow, the, the episode ends finally with Jerry's mother showing up at the penultimate moment. Gwyneth Paltrow character brought in Jerry's mom so that Jerry could fuck her, because apparently if you have an unresolved fortune, you're basically immortal, uh, until your fortune does come true, you can't be killed, uh, which is why at one point in the episode, Rick is using Jerry as a human shield against bullets, and then as Jerry runs away from him in in the final showdown, Rick is like, Jerry, come back and block bullets, because he hasn't resolved the fortune of fucking his mother yet, so he's of course still invincible, um, but that's super funny this episode was like all-time classic to me like this is up there with like the crazy one-off adventures that you've seen previously this is like pickle Rick on crack to me that's how I feel about it it's an insulated adventure it's just starring Rick and Jerry this episode doesn't have more Morty doesn't have summer doesn't have Beth uh, until like the post credit scene uh, and and during the beginning of the episode But I would give this a a 9.5 out of 10 Schmeckles. It may be my favorite episode of the season so far. Uh, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And then we're going to get a six-week break for Rick and Morty until November 20th. So we won't have these reviews on the podcast for the next couple episodes as they take a mid-season break, which has become more and more popular over the past year or so with all of these shows. So it's unsurprising that Rick and Morty has decided to split it up a little bit as well, uh, give them more time to push out season seven, probably closer to fall of next year. Um, But anyhow, the next episode, uh, episode six, season six, is called Jurassic Mort. Um, It starts immediately dealing with the television newscaster who's mentioning the rift in space. So we're immediately touching on the canonical again after having not touched on it for most of the season, uh, aside from the beginning, um, and some references to the lack of portal travel. Uh, This episode deals with that in detail. The dinosaurs come back to Earth, and by come back I mean to say that they evolved into a a space-traveling interplanetary species, and now they've come back to Earth, uh, to their surprise monkeys have gone bald, um, and we are making Marvel movies, which we love to spend our time doing instead of evolving further as a society. Which is really uh, taking us down. This episode does a, a lot to take down human society, which is hilarious in my opinion. The president shows up because the president isn't too happy with the status quo. Wants Rick to zero dark thirty the dinosaurs. Um, the dinosaurs are hyper intelligent though. They offer to fix the portal rift for Rick, which he says he doesn't want to have happen because quote he can do it himself and it has a totally canonical place. He's gonna do something with it. It's kind of a major joke in that they're saying it's there for a reason. We're going to work with it. We're going to work with it. But then, of course, by the end of the episode, the dinosaurs have restored portal travel, or rather uh, they have healed the inter- interdimensional rift, so it's no longer in existence. And then, of course, uh, Rick does fix the portal gun by the end of the episode, not to be confused with the portal pistol that the dinosaurs offer him, which is, of course, the same thing as a portal gun, except... No green swirly inside. You can actually see where you're going. Uh, Rick didn't like that. Uh, "Quote Doctor Manhattan bullshit, high road bullshit." When they when they say when he teleported the dinosaurs, teleported Rick and Morty back to his garage uh, after an encounter, a defiant encounter between the two. Um, but yeah, so it turns out the dinosaurs go to these planets, and meteors follow them and impact the planet and cause. Um, devastation of uh, a, a, a planetary devastation type situation so uh, they left our planet which is why humans were able to evolve but now they've come back and the meteors is chasing them Rick discovers this by going to other planets that they've been to previously where all of their ancestors are extinct uh, and the species that are left with dinosaur bones are trying to figure out exactly what those creatures were and what they did some of them think they were giant soup eaters some of them think they were shredding on skateboards, which is also hilarious cuz in the post uh post episode credits, uh the the dinosaurs do go to a planet and start skating. They're like, I'm going to do a 50-50 to a Christ air into a <laughs> like they're doing skateboarding tricks as dinosaurs. It's it's quite hilarious. Um this episode does uh heal the 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 portal pistol issue. So now uh Rick saying that there was a canonical issue why he didn't heal the rift, and he could have done the portal uh, fixing of the portal gun at any time. Now he's been forced into it. The portal gun is fixed, uh, and there's no more issues. If they want to go interdimensionally hopping, they can do so. If there's something they want to flesh out with the cannon over the back half of the season, they can do so. Uh, I wonder what that means for Evil Morty. Is Evil Morty closed off behind the rift? Because he obviously made it outside of the central finite curve. He's got those golden portals, whereas Rick is still working with the green portals. Um, I do wonder how that works. But then again, the the portal pistol was like kind of pink on the edges, so it was like yet another color of portal. And I know people really pay attention to the color of portal. Like that's some type of thing that's uh, gonna potentially glean some information from that. But I don't think that it's. I'm starting to think it might not matter what the colors of the portal are so much. I uh, could still be wrong on that. Obviously, the blue portal is not interdimensional, but just like spatial travel through the same universe, teleportation. So maybe the pistol... I don't know. Maybe the colors still do matter. It's tough. Anyway, Jurassic Mort, I'd give this 8.5 Schmeckles. Very good episode. Not my favorite, but still very, very strong. The season... Uh, remains one of the best seasons of Rick and Morty, if not my favorite, personally. I only came in during season four, so it's easily the best season since I began watching. Uh, But season two does stand tall amongst all of the seasons, so it is hard to go against that. But season six of Rick and Morty, if you haven't checked it out, it's available to purchase on iTunes. I suggest doing it. I think it's worth it. I promise you'll spend 25 bucks on much more worthless shit all right so let's talk about the she hulk final two episodes the finale of the series kind of wrap up the series as a whole again since we don't talk about this stuff episode to episode for the most part which may be something i'll change in future formats i don't know i kind of want to just roll with the show as i feel like it should go I don't want to be doing an episode-to-episode episode review. Then I'm just like every other podcast out there. But I would like to talk about the final two episodes in which Jen Walters does sleep with Matt Murdock, a.k.a. Daredevil. Kind of learns to do a little bit of superheroing with him. Uh, in addition to the fact that she gets hit with the revenge porn angle where the the evil guy's intelligentsia, the like incel Redditor group that's going down, they revenge porn her. While she's accepting a Female Lawyer of the Year award at like a Southern California, you know, lawyer gala of some sort. Um, As well as the finale itself. So, a lot of people liked the Daredevil episode. And that's not surprising. There's this Leapfrog guy and he's like not using the suit that he was given appropriately. So, She-Hulk is forced into suing the man who makes her super suit, and uh, I suppose Matt Murdock's as well. Um, And when it comes down to it, this guy is an idiot that she's actually defending, uh, or rather, using, to uh, uh, representing in his lawsuit. And he admits to the court that he had not used uh, the instructions that were given to him regarding this suit. So it's his own fault. It's just a misuse of property, no patent issue, no issue with construction or uh, with the actual superhero costume itself for the guy named Leapfrog. Next thing you know, um, it's it it cuts to She-Hulk and, and Matt Murdock and Dare their, as Daredevil, their and they're going into this gang hideout and she's smashing stuff and he's stealth and stuff doing his hallway bit where he's fucking people up in a hallway, and it's all great, and it's all dandy. Next thing you know, Daredevil's doing a walk of shame out of the She-Hulk apartment. I think that's hilarious. That was a funny scene. A lot of people seem to like this episode. Um, The revenge porn angle is really interesting, because obviously, if you got female friends, you got daughters, you got sisters, you know, you got cousins. You know, we live in a time where revenge porn's a real thing, so you, you have some lovely lady that's willing to let you you know, video photograph, video photograph. You know, what the fuck am I? Ninety years old? They let you take a silly little video so that you can have some for later, a little memento, a little private time, action, a little hands-on. Forget about it. And then you go and get revenge on them when you break up by releasing that, whether it's on Pornhub or some other fucking website where you're an asshole and you're like, look, here's the ex-girlfriend, look how I, you know, did all this sexual stuff with her. And now I'm releasing it for the world to see, even though they, of course, never had the intention that that would be broadly or widely shared. Uh, I think it's shitty, I think that it makes you a piece of shit if you do that, uh, for the most part, that's why I never took videos, uh, or photographs, uh, maybe I'm old school, I guess I am kind of, I'm 36, so, um, you know, most of you weren't fucking born yet and I already had the internet, but, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's definitely some realism to this whole revenge porn angle that the episode ends on, which sets up the finale, so Jen... Walters is now in the Department of Damage Control. They have to release her because she's been arrested. She's fired from her job, which I don't know if I totally understand because all things considered, you'd think they'd stand behind her considering the revenge porn angle, but okay, whatever. So she goes to Emil Blonsky's getaway retreat where she finds her friends. Have we'll found the group intelligentsia or incel agenda, that's more like incel agentsia. Uh, they're all there at the retreat, so they can use Emil Blonsky, who has transformed himself into the abomination strictly for a public speaking event for a paid fee that he's gonna do. He's gonna like be a life coach for these incels who have serious issues, and um. Jen is not happy about that, but then all of a sudden, Titania busts through the wall, and Hulk busts through the roof, and all this shit is going on, and and She-Hulk, you know, completely smashes and destroys the fourth wall, saying, like, why the fuck is all this you know, ham-fisted shit in my show. I don't need all this. This is too much. This is extra. I don't know why we're doing this. Which, frankly, I agreed with, and I'm kind of happy they kind of broke that up because it was looking like a fucking really sloppy finale for this series. So she, like, comes out of the, you know, Disney main menu for Disney Plus and goes into Assembled so she can, like, get to the Marvel Cinematic Studios, go to the backstage to find Kevin, who, of course... Turns out not to be Kevin Feige, but instead a robot with the uh, initials K-E-V-I-N, which stands for some ridiculous thing that I don't want to think about right now. Honestly, it's like, uh, cool, you nerd. Um, I don't really care for the anagram that you're doing here. But the point is is that artificial intelligence is apparently in charge of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all the storyline decisions within it. All because of an algorithm. Spoiler alert, the whole fucking world is ruled by algorithms. Make me nauseous, make me vomit. And uh, She-Hulk tells him, what the fuck are we doing? We gotta rewrite the finale, this is garbage. It's too ham-fisted, it's too obvious. Uh, And and the artificial intelligence reluctantly agrees. So they go back to the show and uh, Phelps, who is the Hulk king uh, has been arrested, Blonsky's been taken back into custody for violating the conditions of his parole, which included not transforming into the abomination, um, Murdoch is with the family, is with the Walters family, and they're enjoying, like, a Sunday picnic, so I guess maybe they're, like, dating each other now, I don't know, I'm cool with it, I don't know if everybody else is, it seems like most people are cool with the daredevil Jen Walters pairing, and it only seems natural, they're superheroes, they're lawyers, Uh, it feels like they're a natural pairing with one another, and she does make a reference in the episode to smashing things, including Matt Murdock, and she winks at the camera. I think it's a cute wall break. Some people are incels on Reddit, and they're just going crazy. As a side note, this, this did really nail all those fucking losers on Reddit who get super mad about women's empowerment, like... Oh, it's so cringe that she's fucking Daredevil and she's looking at the camera and weaking about it. Oh, it's so cringe. Why is it so cringe? Because a woman can have sexuality? Is it cringe because a woman can want to have sex? Because women fuck too, you nerd. Why the fuck are you so up, up a woman's ass for wanting to have the same sexual desires as any other human being? I hate that shit. That shit really bothers me. And if that's your opinion and you're listening to my podcast, turn me the fuck off. I don't even want your listen. I don't want your view on Spotify. I don't want it. If you're one of those incel fucking jerk offs who can't take a joke. If you're one of the people that this show is poignantly pointing at. Uh, And laughing at, and you're sitting here still getting angry about it. I feel bad for you. I just have pity for you, and I hope that you get your life turned around. Because seriously, it's not a way to live your life to be a piece of shit that's telling women they can't have the same interactions and feelings, sexual or not, that men can have. And you should have a problem with yourself for thinking that you're right. Uh, So I'll end that side note. They're having a picnic with the Walters family when. Of course, Bruce Banner shows up with his son Scar, who comes from Sakar, which uh I I mean, I don't Okay, I don't read the source material for this stuff, but did somebody really just miss a letter in the spelling of Sakar and they and they spelled Scar like That might be one of the dumbest named characters I've ever seen in the history of naming characters. And I don't mean just the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't mean just, like, Marvel Comics. I mean in the history of named characters, the fact that your son from Sakaar is named Scar. Like, come the fuck on. What kind of JV shit is this? Who the fuck is the junior varsity comic book writer who came up with this dumb shit? I think it's really stupid. Anyway, Jennifer Walters regains her job, and, and then the mid-credit scene: Wong breaks out Blonsky and takes him to Kammerer Taj, uh, presumably for that uh, show they're doing with the the bad guys. They got like uh, the wat or not the wasp. They got Ghost back, and like the Taskmaster back, and uh, Red the Red Shield guy from Black Widow uh, is back. And it's, like, the bad guy. It's the Marvel's version of, like, the Suicide Squad, right? Uh, And presumably, Abomination will be the Hulk member of that squad. Uh, And, of course, we'll all laugh and enjoy that film as well. But as far as She-Hulk goes, I give it a hearty 7 out of 10. It was a pretty good series. It wasn't great. It It did have its moments. I enjoyed it very much. Thought it was very funny. I enjoyed the comic effort. I enjoyed that Marvel's trying to stretch the boundaries. ...of the genres they're willing to attempt. Because if you're going to be Marvel... ...and you're going to put out as much content as you're putting out... ...you've got to stretch the boundaries... ...have more Werewolf by Night... ...have more She-Hulk... ...have stuff that isn't always the same... ...formulaic show over and over again... ...with a different superhero involved... ...so that people don't get bored. If they're going to support your brand... ...they want to support your brand because it's very... ...it has a nice variety of things. I don't go to the grocery store... And say, I like bread, so I buy 16 different loaves of bread that have different... No, I I buy the bread, I buy the the spinach, I buy the yogurt, I buy the fruit, I buy the chips, I buy the frozen goods, I buy the baked goods. Like, you know, I buy all the different things that I like at the grocery store. Because I like variety, and people like to chew on variety. And I like to chew on variety of shows and, and films as well. So I hope that Marvel keeps taking these big swings... Because more often than not, they'll end up like werewolf by night and not like, uh, well, I've I've enjoyed most of the swings they've taken. So just keep going, Marble. You're doing your thing. So welcome to another edition of the Muse Room. That's, of course, the music room. The room where muses are felt, it's a passion project. I'd like to talk about these music projects because I'm a big fan of music. I mean, most people are. Who isn't? So what's that even saying? What I'm saying is my taste in music is rather eclectic, and I like a lot of different things in a lot of different genres. So when you step into the muse room, you're bound to find something interesting. I'm only going to be talking about really good music, really good pieces of music, things, uh, things like that that will tickle Your eardrums with lyrical ear come. So today on The Muse Room, we're going to be talking about a band and their new album release. The band's name is Broken Bells. It has two members. That's James Mercer and Brian Burton. Brian Burton, you may know as Danger Mouse, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, the singular greatest music producer of our generation. Um, Danger Mouse is known... For a great deal of good stuff Initially the Grey album when he remixed uh, The Beatles' white album and Jay-Z's black album Put it out on the internet and it took the internet by storm The, the Grey album still one of the greatest pieces of musical work I've ever personally heard uh, Then of course he was responsible for uh, Demon Days One of the great, if not the greatest, Gorillaz album ever produced Uh, then there was the MF Doom Danger Doom collaboration, uh, The Mouse and the Mask. Uh, he was a part of Gnarls Barkley with CeeLo Green, uh, and he released the album Saint Elsewhere, which of course had the hit song, Does That Make Me Crazy? That was pretty good. Um... So that was another major one for 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 DJ Danger DJ Danger Mouse. I see say DJ, but he's so much more than that. Um, then he produced another collaboration with Damon Albarn from the Gorillas called "The Good, The Bad, and The Queen." Um, another Gnarls Barkley album called "The Odd Couple." Uh, And then he did an amazing Spaghetti Western album, which most people aren't familiar with. I implore you to go listen to it if you haven't ever heard of it. It's amazing with Jack White and Nora Jones, the Italian composer, Danielle Lupe. Uh, It's called Rome. It is one of my top 20 greatest albums of all time. It is unknown, supremely underrated, but maybe one of the finest pieces of work in musical history. Seriously, go check that out. Uh, So, Danger Mouse also did a bunch of work for ASAP Rocky, Portugal the Man. You name it, he's pretty much worked with them. He's also worked with um, the Black Keys a bunch on stuff like El Camino. Uh, I I just love... I I love Danger Mouse. I think he's fantastic. So, anyhow, back to Broken Bells. It is a collaboration with James Mercer, lead singer of The Shins. And um, it's definitely... It's something that they only do so often. They've only put out a couple of albums. Broken Bells in 2010, self-titled. After the Disco in 2014, one of my favorites. And now we're talking about Into the Blue uh, here in 2022. October 7th was the drop date for that one. Brand new album. It's absolutely fantastic. Just another piece of great work by Danger Mouse and by uh, Mr. Mercer. I will say this. Uh, the production on the album is, as usual, incredibly high quality. But James Mercer does an does a amazing job singing on it. Um, it's the band's first album since 2014. So honestly, I didn't even realize there was going to be more Broken Bells. But now that we have it, it is an absolute and positive delight. Uh, it's a nine-track album running 41 minutes long. So we're talking about four and a half minutes, give or take, average per song. Uh, a couple of them are five minutes plus, which I'm really into. Obviously, if you've heard my Muse Room musings before, I'm into more progressive rock. Uh, I like longer music rather than shorter music. Of course, like anybody else, I get down with a pop jam, a three-minute hit. You know, I'm I'm into that stuff. But if you had to ask me the perfect length of a song, I'd probably tell you five minutes twenty seconds, five and a half minutes. That's 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 right in line with what I love. So. The album is highly rated, it's 75 out of 100 on Metacritic, uh, it's gotten multiple 4 out of 5 stars, uh, NME only gave it 3 out of 5 stars, I don't know what their problem is, maybe they don't know how to rate things appropriately, I'm not too sure, but, uh, the genre technically is like indie rock, maybe trip-hop, some people have called it like space rock, uh, because it's so unique, uh, and unto itself amongst rock, but, uh, the the 9 tracks are Into the Blue, We're Not In Orbit Yet, Invisible Exit, Love on the Run, One Night, Saturdays, Forgotten Boy, The Chase, and Fade Away. And I'm incredibly partial to the entire album, but the best tracks, if you're just looking for a little bit of a quick hit, a quick cut of this album, I would suggest you listen to We're Not In Orbit Yet and The Chase. Um, maybe Love on the Run as well. Yeah, Love on the Run. We're not in orbit yet, and The Chase uh, do a great job of illustrating exactly what Broken Bells can accomplish, what they're about, what this album is really about. Um, to me, as far as what the album is trying to stay state, is it's... Um, I think it's kind of saying that we as a human civilization, as a species... Uh, Not a civilization rather well, but also that but we as a species We're not uh, I think we're not in orbit yet is going to the state to the fact that uh, As far as we've made it we're literally in space now and we're able to reach, you know Into the into the heavens But still there's so much more for us to discover about ourselves about our place in life our place in the galaxy Uh, Our place on the planet honestly because there's so much going on right now. That's terrifying climate change climate disaster uh, Rampant homelessness drought famine plague uh, You name it the apocalypse the four horsemen are here and they are amongst us every day What they're trying to say is that we haven't quite made it to where we're trying to go yet We're still chasing after it um, and hopefully we don't fade away from this planet before our time is done Uh, We have so much work yet to do, even though we've reached so far and our arms are outstretched. Uh, I think that's very deep. I think it's a very meaningful message. I think that that's something a lot of people could stand to listen to uh, in modern times, because too many people think, uh, myself included, even I'm guilty of this, that they understand and they know it all. And there's so much to learn and so much to know in this world that you can't possibly hope to know it all. And certainly no one's learned it all yet. So, you know, we get caught up in listening to institutions or we get caught up listening to individuals. We get caught up in this populism of a character and and think to ourselves, we're looking for saviors. We're looking for one person saviors when the reality of the fact is that there is no one savior. The only person that can start to save the world we live in, the society we live in, The only people that can save our species is ourselves. And that means to stop looking outwardly and start looking inwardly towards what you're able to accomplish. It means that you need to look yourself in the mirror every day and say... Is what I'm doing with my life worth it? Or am I just wasting my life? Is my life completely selfish and inward and pointed at my own happiness and entertainment? Or am I looking outwardly to how I affect others? Am I looking outwardly to how I fit into processes? Am I looking into where my piece of the puzzle fits into the grander scheme? Or am I ignoring my role on this earth? Am I ignoring my responsibilities to my future man because at the end of the day, what you do on this earth does matter uh, to millions and billions of people that will come after you, theoretically. Uh, and if, if we continue to look inwardly, if we continue to be selfish, uh, if we continue to think only of ourselves and not of others, then we'll never ever be able to impact the earth. Uh, we'll never be able to impact our species in a positive way. I know a lot of people out there don't want to have kids because of the state of society, and I definitely get that. I've got my 12-year-old daughter. I don't plan on having another anytime soon, uh, least of all until things start to, you know, maybe crest and go back towards something of a more livable situation for the entire planet. But um, honestly, I think it would be great if people could start looking inward at themselves instead of outward at everybody else. So much criticism of everybody else and what they're doing. It's got people feeling uh, just not they're not associated with anything. You feel desensitized to the world. Um, And I know it's hard, but you have to start looking inwardly at yourself and asking, how can I make things better? Uh, And then start holding your fellow human beings to those same standards and accountability. That's what it takes. Look inside yourself. Look in the mirror and go look. Uh, No Michael Jackson jokes here. Just look in the man in the mirror and ask yourself, uh, have you launched yourself to orbit? Are you already gone? Are you already too far gone? Or can you be brought back down to earth? Because we need you down here. So that's what I think the theme of the album Into the Blue by Broken Bells is about. Shout out my buddy Jamie Davenport, Anthony Davenport III. I miss you, bro. I know you'll probably never listen to this, but I think about you all the time. Especially when, uh, especially when specifically talking about music. Love you, bro.